When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com. Thank you for listening to BRC and Friends. This is another episode that is done in partnership between First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto and BRC and Friends. In this series, you're going to be hearing from candidates for the Palo Alto City Council. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Greetings all, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto webinars. It's a place where we engage the hearts and minds of academics, artists, authors, and community leaders. I'm Bruce Reyes Chow and the pastor at First Presbyterian Church. Today's webinar is part of a series where I am interviewing 2020 candidates for Palo Alto City Council. Uh, The series of interviews, I hope not only to get to know the issues that are important to each candidate, but also to get to know the person behind the politician. We will be taking questions later. I'm on my own today. Derek is away, has the webinar off. So please, please, please use the Q&A section. I won't be able to monitor the chat quite as well as Derek can. So if you have a question, put it in the Q&A feature and we'll get to those later in the program. Webinar is being recorded and it'll be shared on our church YouTube channel, our Instagram TV channel, as well as posted as part of my podcast, BRC and Friends. All right, that's all the intro we do every week. Today, I welcome candidate Rebecca Eisenberg. So Rebecca, thank you for being here. And as we start, uh, I just want to know about you. So tell us who you are, who is Rebecca, as much that would, you know, folks might want to know about who you are as a person. Go for it. Okay, so um, my name is Rebecca Eisenberg. I am 52 years old. (laughs) I am an attorney. I've been an attorney for most of my life, actually. So that's um, just almost 30 years. I've been a lawyer more than I have not been a lawyer. Kind of weird. Um, So that's, I guess, maybe why one of the things I bring up first. I'm also a feminist. I'm an anti-racist. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, originally. Uh, Wisconsin is the um, birthplace of the labor movement, so I'm also uh, defined, you know, by my support of workers. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was raised in a suburb of Milwaukee my, um, by my parents, uh, who uh, my mother was a, a teacher for 50 years. My father was a lawyer who faced some anti-Semitism starting out in the, his career and then ultimately was actually um, appointed to the federal bench for bankruptcy. So um, financial and economic issues have really shaped me my whole life. Um, he almost didn't accept that appointment the year I was, um, it happened the same year I was accepted at Stanford. Everyone else in my family went to University of Wisconsin, which by the way, was free free in, in right. 1980s. Go, 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 back, go Bucky Badger. Bucky Badger. Right? And, and, uh, and Wisconsin is a fantastic school. I ended up being um, fortunate to be able to go to Stanford. Um, you know, often I say, you know, blowing through my parents, you know, last dime, basically, which isn't really funny, because my, um, when I got into Stanford, which we didn't expect, it was the same month my father got appointed to the bench, which came with a big um, 
pay cut. I think that federal judges then were paid maybe $70,000 a year, which is less than half of the median household income here in, in Palo Alto. And so he was um, truly not going to accept the appointment. And I said to him, Dad, if you don't take this appointment, I'll just go to Wisconsin. You know, it's good enough for everyone else in my family. It's good enough for me. It's a great school. And he figured it out. My parents did. So um, and I went to Stanford. Then I went to Harvard Law School. And since then, I have dedicated my life really to serving the community in different ways. Um, and that's why I'm here today. That's why I'm talking to you, because I am running for city council, because I want to serve our community um, in every way I can. So thanks right. for asking. Yeah, so we, we have some common roots a little bit. We you lived in San Francisco for a while, as we've yeah. kind of chatted, and, and I lived in San Francisco, pretty new here. So tell me about, like, why are you in Palo Alto? Why do you love this place? Like, why why did you you leave? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a year out of San Francisco, so I'm, I still long for my San Francisco kind of life, but I'm, and I'm getting used to Palo Alto and beginning <laughs> to love it. But you've been here a little longer than me now. Um, why? What's the transition? What do you love about Palo Alto? Uh, why should why should people believe that you care about this city? I mean, what do you <laughs> okay. what do you love about it? Well, I want to be really clear about this. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who are run for this office, and one thing that they say is going for them is that they were born and raised here. <laughs> oh yeah. And and I you know I recognize that they were born and raised here, but to me the big big thing that goes off in my head, and this is not a judgment of about any of these people, but the word that comes out in my head is wealthy, is wealthy, you know, because um, I, so I loved Palo Alto when I attended Stanford in the 1980s. And um, it was back then, which again, it was even before some of my competitors were born, but back then it was um, far more inclusive. And by that, I don't, I, I mean, in part, it felt to me, um, well, first I want to say it wasn't really inclusive racially. That's always been a big problem. The segregation and the, well, the intentional segregation, I want to say, because it, it, it's been by policies of Palo Alto. But other than that, it's, it was inclusive, and not to trivialize that because that's a big deal, but um, economically, it was more inclusive. As a college student, we could live in Palo Alto. We could live near Palo Alto. I was able to spend all my summers in Palo Alto. Um, I worked as a cocktail waitress in 42nd Street Bar and Grill, which was the only full bar in Palo Alto at the time. And it was a fantastic job. And I made a ton of money for a college student, you know, $500 right. in tips a night. I mean, I think that's a ton of money for anyone, to be honest. Um, so, and I just love the feeling that that the feeling of a college town. Now, as you heard me say, I went to law school on the East Coast, I went to Harvard, and then I, I lived in different places working, um, clerking for federal judges, including Houston for the chief judge of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. But when the internet thing happened, I moved back to the Bay Area. And I actually really wanted to move to Palo Alto, but this is a recurring theme for me. I couldn't afford it. I can Uh oh, we're losing some uh, bandwidth with uh, Rebecca. Fortunately, well, hopefully she'll pop back on here. <laughs> Technology—it's—it is lovely, uh, as as we know. Um, if any of you have any questions for Rebecca yet, hopefully she'll pop back on here, and and all will be well. Uh, the days of internet and streaming—I know Rebecca has a couple at home that are probably online 
All right. Oh, go ahead. You're muted, Rebecca. There you go. That was embarrassing. I have. No, that's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> I have. I mean, I guess I'm not embarrassed. I have um, my husband is working from home, and yep. um, both and you have both a couple. You have a couple students, school. yeah. Totally so understandable. It's, um, it's I guess I get kicked off Zoom every now and then, but um, anyway, so that was where I could afford to live. And in 2001, I took a great job at in Palo Alto for, um, and now you look frozen. Am I frozen for yeah, PayPal? There you go. Keep going. Yay, for PayPal. Um, and I found myself commuting an hour to an hour and a half every day from San Francisco to Palo Alto, where I was working. And through the six years that I worked at PayPal, um, and I had both my kids then, I, my husband and I looked all the time for a place to live in Palo Alto or a home to buy in Palo Alto, and we just couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. So... We bought a place we could afford in San Francisco. I can continue to commute. Kids went to private school because we didn't get any schools off the lottery in San Francisco, any public schools. And finally, as my daughter was entering middle school and my son was, became a really serious baseball player and we found him, he was commuting to and from baseball practice and baseball games. We finally moved down here and just decided to rent. Um, what we wanted is we wanted the public schools and we wanted the neighborhood feel where our kids could have the independence to bike back and forth. So I still haven't fulfilled that dream of owning a house in, in Palo Alto, but, and, I, and I probably never will. But you know what? That's actually okay because um, as I tell my kids, I'm not embarrassed about the fact that we don't have several million dollars to buy a house here. Um, the vast majority of people don't have that. And um, it's, not, it's not embarrassing. Trust me, it's, it's, it's expensive enough to rent, but it's worth it. It's really worth it. Um, you know, public schools have been great. Um, although my daughter goes to a private school because she has a learning difference that the private school really serves. And the community is amazing. And, you know, again, I, I, anything I wish I would have moved earlier. Yeah, yeah. So what, what are your favorite things about the city? Though? Like when you're just, if somebody comes to visit, in non-pandemic times, uh, what did you do? I mean, what were the kind of the things, where places you're going? And this is somewhat selfish because I'm still learning about where to go and where to hang out. Um, like I used to love uh, going to the Nut House. We have another common thing is I bartended my way through seminary. That's how <laughs> I uh, made all my money. So, um, and did some of my best ministry and counseling when I was bartending, which is not not surprising. But where, like, where do you take folks? Like, what are the places that you would you would visit? Hike, take, like, what, what about uh, this place did you show people off? You know, it's really funny because um, for me, a community is really about the people. Mm -hmm. So when I have um, people visit me, visiting me, which of course hasn't been the case in quite a while, <laughs> uh, which is really sad. I really, really miss my parents most of all, and so do my kids. Um, I, uh, it, I usually introduce them around to my neighbors, um, we're best friends with a with a family in the house directly to our north. Um, sometimes, you know, pre pre pandemic, you know, our families were so tight that I sometimes call um, us we're the south wing of their house, and uh, <laughs> the kids run back and forth, you know, between the yards, and that's really how I grew up. Um, you know, in Milwaukee, it was more of a you know neighborhood feel. I, I bring them, you know, I introduce them to the people. I think people define a neighborhood. I've Tons and tons of college friends here, you know, from Stanford. And I love the whole 
um, academic feel. I guess maybe I'll bring them to Stanford and, you know, just have them feel the amazing presence of this incredible academic institution. Um, I'll bring them to the dog park, you know, because dog parks, uh, you know, dogs are a big part of my life. I know. Here. My dogs are hurting oh, <laughs> right now. I know, I know. I know. It's, it's, this, this time is hard for everybody. So yeah. really that's at Neighbors, Stanford, dog park. You know, I say right. those things. <laughs> well, I, I will say I, 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 we, would, we would do Nuthouse. Uh, and I'm, there's no sponsorship by any of these businesses. Uh, we did Nut House, and I would always take people to get cronuts uh, at Happy Donuts, which oh, is you know, great, yeah. life changing. Uh, <laughs> as, as I'm getting to know businesses, especially kind of in the southern part where where I also am, uh, you know, I think it's a it, it's great because there is this small town feel that certainly has its downsides, but has this great upside of people kind of get to know you. Uh, I, I did a podcast where I interviewed a bunch of the baristas at the Phil's from Middlefield to kind of get a sense of, you know, what folks are up to these days, back when we could meet in person, all of that. Well, um, so let me know, what, what do you think then, and we'll talk about issues in a minute, uh, specific things. And, uh, I don't know if you know, but Nuthouse has said that they were shutting down. I know. Um, and. And for me, it's, um, it is a really big frustration because the Nut House was actually one of my favorite places to go when I was in college. And in fact, it's like the last one that is kind of, well, I guess the Goose is still in business, but it, other than the Goose is the last one that was, was still around. And my husband and I, especially my husband, are actually good friends with the people who are there. And right now there's actually a, um, it's a, they, they had a very interesting food kitchen. I don't know if you got to eat there of, it was kind of like a Mexican plus, yep. uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, I, yep. I, I, you know, spicy, it's super interesting food. And, and it, my husband brought home, it home from there, you know, food home from there forever. And actually he had actually been walk, he had walked over there to hand them my sign for my campaign. Cause they were going to put it up in their window when they told them the news yeah. that they were going to have to I, close. Doors. And I don't want to. I don't want to go too much on this, but did is it a? It's it's not a permanent, but it's a. If we can come back, we will. Or do you think? It, I don't know. I mean, I hope yeah. that they can. They've had a GoFundMe, um, you know, a campaign, and I, you know, but these things are really expensive. I mean, I yeah. think we all want to bring them back. Frustratingly, they actually blamed um, the construction of that huge parking garage right behind them for a lot of the reasons that they were having trouble with no one wants to eat outside with the, all that construction going on. Uh. And I had really lobbied very hard against that garage without even thinking about that potential consequence because people yeah. were so sure that garage would help businesses. But I live right near that neighborhood and they're really, there hasn't been that kind of problem with parking that, yeah, you know. Well, and it, it will be interesting to see, you know, whatever normal is going to look like in the future as things shift if Santa Clara County comes out of its, you know, purple as we're supposed to get next week and what else. Anyway, um, again, Nuthouse has no sponsorship in this show. So, <laughs> but we, we clearly both like that place, but let, um, let me, let's spend a little bit of uh, time again. We'll get into some specific issues, but just as, as, as I'm asking everybody, what do you think are the collective challenges then for our community as, as Palo Alto is, is clearly at some kind of crossroads as the country is, what do you think are the challenges for Palo Alto moving forward? So, I, Palo Alto is facing a number of, of challenges all at once. And I, I believe that they are all 
intertwined. They're all related. I think it's really hard to talk about one without talking about another. Um, so, and I also want to say that Palo Alto has this incredible opportunity and it's the opportunity that why I'm here, but first the challenges. So I think we, we've heard a lot about them in the news. Palo Alto has a problem with um, police violence against African-American people and all people of color so that um, the, our community of color, those who live here, those who work here, you know, those who have been excluded from this community by uh, policies of intentional segregation in the past, they um, please don't have crashed again. Oh, good, few. I was about to say, I was about to go crazy because I just flickered. Anyway, they, it is intolerable to us as a community that there are people in our community that do not feel safe here. And until we solve this problem of violence and brutality, racial violence in the police, we have people who will not be safe, who are not safe. We also face a huge economic um, challenge that is created by this growing and huge gap between the rich and the poor. And this of course is related to racial segregation because what we know, you know, and we both discussed how to, you know, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, that we know that economic issues are racial justice issues because um, of the differential negative impact on our communities of color. And our growing divide between the rich and the poor and this growing masses of poor who are getting poorer while the rich are getting richer is leading to crisis levels of um, homelessness or home insecurity um, inability for affordable housing at every level, but especially for very low income. Um, we are seeing a, a huge lack of any sort of safety, social safety net for our community here. Um, when you think about at least what I consider to be the human rights that, that constitute a social safety net, I think of them as housing, healthcare, childcare, um, jobs that pay a living wage, and transit, <laughs> oh, and of course, quality education, we are moving in the wrong direction on all these things. And they are related. And we're moving in the wrong direction, meaning we have less housing. <laughs> more, more and more people are becoming uninsured in, during a pandemic. You know, the childcare is needed more because of at-home schooling, but available less. Um, education quality has gone down because of the complications of teaching in the pandemic and because the teachers don't have childcare. And transit, our, our city council has divest, divested it from transit rather than investing in it. All of these things are happening, making it, putting the downward pressure on the poor while we have this growing number of rich people that are not paying their fair share. So that in a nutshell is, is, is mm -hmm. and all of this is related, related to the, the racial, lack of racial justice. So right. I mean, those are, there's, there's, there's lots of that. That actually is a really good kind of overall, what kind of the things you're passionate about and thinking about and concerned about, which leads us into some of our questions. And, and just so everybody knows all the candidates received, received these questions in advance. So everybody got the same questions. Um, and also if you have any questions of your own that if Rebecca's sparking any for you, uh, please do put it in the Q&A, not in the chat, uh, and we'll, we'll get to those in a little bit. But so let me just start with the first one that I'm asking everybody. I, I teasingly say we're going to start with the easy one. Let's start with institutional racism and policing because, you know, that's light and easy. Uh, but so, you know, I, I have my 
opinions and all that as, as an individual and as a person of faith and all those around institutional racism and policing. And I come out of San Francisco that is, has been uh, a struggle for, for our police department. Um, and I've mentioned in other places, I'm not a big fan of eight can't wait. I just think it, it is, it's a, uh, it's a very baseline. Um, some feel it's not, it almost does more damage, but that's all debatable. Right. I, so, uh, as I, as people are talking about reform, right. They can't wait looking at defunding or refunding or reallocating, however you want to talk about it or abolition. Right. So police mass incarceration, those kind of things go. What do you, what are you thinking about this as we're thinking about, uh, Palo Alto police? Cause, and, and I'll say one more thing. Um, I think Palo Alto has this, what, what I love about it is it does have this, like small town, like we could actually try things here because the scale is not like San Francisco, right? It's <laughs> not, right? It, that you could actually possibly try some things that could be leading in in, in our country and culture, which I think is a, a gift to small towns. Anyway, go ahead. Institutional racism, police, policing, reform, defund, ab- abolish. Go and we'll talk about it a little bit. Great. So, um, can I call you pastor or call you Bruce? Oh, you can call me Bruce. Okay. I, so, I, I joke that I want people at the church to call me your highness, but they will never do that. So I just, I, they're just, they're inflexible now. Yeah, Bruce is fine. Okay. I, you know, I try to be respectful. So, okay, that's a lot of questions. And, um, yep. but I, while you were giving your take on everything, I was nodding my head because, <laughs> yes, yes um, and trying to remember all of them. So um, I'll just start with the one that I comes up most in my mind, A Can't Wait. I agree with you. It is not enough. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Minnesota had eight can't wait at the same time when George Floyd was brutally murdered before all of our eyes. And um, so we have seen how eight can't wait isn't enough. They had actually, I think they had seven out of the eight already in place. Um, it was very, very disappointing to me that when the city council took this up last week that they actually did not immediately embrace eight can't wait and instead created a lot of carve outs of which I had serious problems like uh, hearing a police officer say that he should have the right to shoot at a moving car and any used California Avenue is an example of a place that that would be okay to do that is not okay in my opinion that is absolutely not okay that scares the heck out of me and um it frightens me and um I, I I actually while recognizing that I don't face the immediate danger that African Americans and Latinx Face right now and other people of color, indigenous, um, I'm still ter- terrified. I, 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 and I feel like if we're not terrified right now, we're not paying attention. <laughs> so uh, how does this play out? <laughs> so I believe that, um, and here my son might walk by in a second, but I, I believe strongly in the defund the police movement. I am not sorry to say that. And I'm not going to mince my words. And by that, I mean that we need to take a heck of a lot of our funding, which in Palo Alto is said to be 20% of our budget. Our budget is $700 million. So, you know, I was told not to do math on this, but I think I can get this one. $140 million, you know, on, on police when we are living in a crisis of homelessness, of growing homelessness, of, um, you know, of people who don't have health insurance, 
this is how we spend our money? No, I say no, because the, you know, the, our police in Palo Alto have a proven record of violence against minorities, a proven record that was shown by the FBI and the ACLU. I mean, we need to put a stop to this. We need to redirect a whole lot of this money. Um, thank you. We need to. Um, so one place I think we uh, should redirect our money is that we need more community groups taking on uh, the vast majority of issues that police officers handle right now. Uh, domestic disputes is one area where, um, as a feminist, as a former you know, battered women's advocate, I've been involved in these types of um, you know, struggles for many, many years. This, this need to de demilitarize the police and to defund the police is not new. You know, in, in Milwaukee, where we just saw, you know, the, the tragic and, and infuriating events of last week, um, it, it, Kenosha is just south of Milwaukee. Um, we, I knew, we knew that the Milwaukee Police Department had, had race issues. We all knew that. And it was a matter of time that this kind of thing would be televised. Because let me tell you, this has happened before. It just happened to be televised this time. Anyway, so we know that community groups are much better at serving um, domestic violence, helping with domestic violence incidents. Uh, very often, that when the police come in, it leads to more death. Um, and so when victims of domestic violence are actually instructed to call nonprofits rather than call the police. And most police departments, enlightened ones, agree that's better. That if you're in a dangerous situation, call the, you know, the domestic violence, we used to call it better women, but we know now it's much beyond women and battering, you know, that uh, to call the domestic violence hotline for immediate help and it's the hotline will help serve. So that is one of the many examples of places where we should have community groups, um, mediators, intervention, and we need to really invest in mental health. Now more than ever, we need to invest in mental health because this lockdown is causing mental health challenges that we haven't even begun to understand. That's what we need yep. to do instead of the police. Ask me how I really feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I love it. I mean, I uh, one, you know, I, I, I certainly lean towards your direction. Again, we have lots of different views on this in our community and our candidates, and in our. So, I, you know, I think there's we can talk about these things well. Um, but I also I, just, I appreciate you just kind of saying. I mean, I think this is where, as a person running, right, you you have to people need to know who you are and what you think. So it's great. Right. Well, let's 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 move on to some other things that I think are important to people, and then uh, folks again. Remember to put questions in the Q&A and uh, you can ask Rebecca. Uh, we'll get to those in a little bit. But let's talk about housing, which continually. And wow. I think there are two questions that have been. So there's there's housing density, right? Just creating more housing. And then there's affordable housing. Sometimes those work together. Sometimes they don't. Um, let's talk Thank about you. let's talk about housing. Go just go ahead and talk. I, I get a sense that if I just say housing, you can go. Go for it. Uh, so. I'm going to try not to get too into the weeds here because housing. Oh, do it, is, do it. No, well, I, it'll go way past our allotted amount of time. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I have literally yeah. pages and pages okay. of proposals about this. So with housing, I think um, we can talk about the causes and we can talk about the solutions. So um, why do we have um, a housing? Because they're, they're related, you know, so 
Um, a big topic that we need to address here is exclusionary zoning and ending it. <laughs> so um, by exclusionary zoning, I mean that Palo Alto, like many communities, have zoning um, rules in place which uh, make it impossible you know, for the community to accommodate a larger number of people. And sorry, I put my glasses back on for this. Um, you know, look at my notes a little if I need to. And um, these, you know, here's what can be done to end exclusionary zoning. There was a, a law that was being proposed that was unfortunately died two nights ago, um, SB 1120, that immediately gave um, owners of properties that in, in single family home, RH1, on RH1 lots, automatically gave them the right to subdivide their property. Many people misunderstood this as, as automatically subdividing all RH1 lots. I think that is something we may have to do in the future if we don't do these kinds of things in the present. But right now, what was proposed was to give owners of single family homes that are zoned, um, I'm not zoned for just one home, the right to add another home. This would mean that people who have lost their jobs um, and are trying to make their 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Mortgage. You know, people who bought more recently and therefore are paying full price on their property tax as opposed to the people who have inherited their property or have owned it for 50 years or are paying almost no property tax. All that has to do with Prop 13 and I yep. can spend... 10 hours talking about that, um, but I, you know, just, I'll just flag it, you know, that that would have given the people in those situations the ability to monetize their, their lots and stay in the community, stay in the community. And it, for reasons I, I, I will not be able to understand, uh, a lot of misstatements about this proposed law were circulated, fear was generated, and it failed. And, um, but that is an example of exclusionary zoning. Another example of exclusionary zoning are minimum lot sizes, you know, and for related reasons. I mean, look at some of the lot sizes here in, in Palo Alto, in old Palo Alto where I live. Like the first day we moved here, I remember my son who was eight at the time, um, looked around at the houses and said, mom, does just one family live there? And I, um, and I said, sorry, that was mine. And I responded saying, um, yeah, one family does live there. And I don't think that's, you know, that's right. I don't know how to turn this off. Um, <laughs> so I'm figure it out. Uh, so that is the problem of, um, I think I did it. So that's the problem of minimum lot sizes. Then we have, you know, and both those go to density. Density 
a mandated low density is exclusionary. Um, additionally, we have problems like uh, caps on building heights, both you know, in terms of individual homes that allows a person to have their extended family maybe move in, which is a great way to accommodate an aging population. Um, you know, we have these, but we have these caps on heights that make it very, very difficult for um, extended families to move in. Um, you know, again, maybe make it hard for someone to rent out part of their home. We also have limitations on people being able to rent out part of their home. All of these limitations cause exclusion and lead to our, our lack of affordable housing. So do I believe in building affordable homes? Heck yeah. You know, I think we need to build a lot. But I think we also need to be honest about what our zoning policies are doing as well. Mm -hmm. And we need to change those. So um, you asked another question, I think, about how to pay for, for affordable housing. Did you? Well, did you I mean, let's, let me ask you just so as I've been getting to know the city and getting to know community and hearing different candidates and people just talk about it, there does seem to be this sense of we want to we want some of our neighborhoods to keep looking the same way, right? So if you start saying, uh, you know, you can now build four stories, I think there is some fears like, well, it's just the wealthiest people are now going to build four story homes. But I, I've also heard about like, well, what about California Avenue, right? Why, why not start to li lift and build some dense housing, affordable housing that is just, it will change the look of some of our neighborhoods. I mean, what do you say to that as people are starting to say, well, but it's going to change the way things look. Like, what are, what is the? I guess the question is, what's the give and take as we build more dense housing, uh, as we try to do more affordable housing? What are you hearing as the pushback to that? Those are three different questions. Yeah, <laughs> okay, go so, for it. Uh, I, I, I'm hearing that NIMBYism is the pushback to it. I think that we need to let go of of needing to preserve the character of a neighborhood mm -hmm. because it actually. Um, a diverse neighborhood is a wonderful thing. Half the, half the homes on my street are empty. Um, that does not make for a good neighborhood. Um, and that's because the people who live there have multiple homes and they're living in their other home right now. Um, that does not make for a good neighborhood. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, while being willing to hear all their concerns about it and not kind of brushing that off as I appear to be doing now, I, I, I feel confident that I could hear those concerns and help people understand another side to those stories. But your first question was super important because also it talked about doesn't allowing building heights then enable people to create mega mansions. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you asked that question. And um, this is why I need to be on city council. You know, <laughs> okay. I mean, this is why the public needs to recognize who I am and what I can do for the city and what I am qualified to do, what I have experience doing and what I will do. The answer to that is that we can draft an ordinance that makes, allows building height for multiple family homes, but not for single family homes. We can draft that. Let me give you another example of, of this exact frustration I, I have often, you know, with our current city council, which doesn't include any lawyers, you know, and I know a couple of my competitors are lawyers, but I've been a lawyer for 30 years, you know, and that actually makes 
a difference. You know, I've, I've practiced law for almost 30 years. So here's what a lawyer with three de- decades of experience can do when it comes to the business tax. Now in, which is related because the business tax is how we're gonna fund housing. It's how we're gonna fund housing. It's how we're gonna fund healthcare. It's how we're gonna fund childcare and transit and education, a business tax. So in May, the current city council voted seven to zero to take the business tax off the November ballot, knowing that there wouldn't be another chance to put it back on a regular ballot, you know, with this kind of turnout for probably two years, this kind of turnout, probably four years. Well, well, depending, maybe eight years. I mean, taking it off the ballot was the same thing, in my opinion, as killing it for the time being. Although I have ideas of how to turn that around, um, emergency taxes, et cetera. Their reason for taking it off is they said a business tax would harm small businesses. And my response is your business tax would harm small business because there is the possibility of a business tax. Actually, Prop 15 is a great example of this. Is a, but I would go further than that. There's a, there's a possibility for a business tax that does not tax any small businesses or medium-sized businesses, or restaurants, or retail. There is, in fact, in Palo Alto, where we have some of the largest and most profitable businesses in the world, and we have at least five businesses who, together adding them up, has made well over $100 billion in profit since the pandemic. By those, I mean Tesla and its headquarters. Palantir has its headquarters here. And we have big offices for Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Each one of these businesses has profited to the tune of billions of dollars off of the pandemic and since the pandemic. These businesses can afford to pay a tax. These businesses can afford to pay into the community that has supported them, you know, and that that made them successful. So what the city council should have done and I will do is put a business tax on the ballot that only taxes these giants, but taxes them a lot. And, you know, if we have a minimum of entry to be taxed of 500 or even a thousand employees and or a minimum revenue amount of half a billion dollars in revenue or a billion dollars of revenue, we still could create hundreds of millions of dollars for our general fund to pay for housing and health care, you know, and child care and education and transit. And we need to do that. Now, how does that apply to housing? Let's just make the housing zoning sensible. You know, let's give the right to multifamily units to build taller, but single family homes not to. You know, let's allow higher density as we get closer to transit, you know, and let's also make sure that there is a residence in every lot that is zoned for residential use, because we are seeing a big shift away from that, not just in terms of the ghost houses, but also in terms of the, of, you know, the expansion of Castilea, all of the residential lots, um, and the recent conversion that the, uh, city council approved of president hotel you know a hundred households were evicted illegally and now all those units are being taken off the market we're moving in the wrong direction 
we need to turn that around. Great. Thank you. There you go. Um, love it. Love it. All right. So let's, uh, um, we haven't touched on a couple of things. So tell me where you think we're headed. We don't have a little lot of this. We're actually 40 minutes in already, if you can imagine where we've started to go. Um, so t- let's talk about climate change a little bit. I know Palo Alto has continually been on the forefront and trying to lead and by, uh, 2030, we're trying to get to 80%. So um, just talk a little about your where you stand on climate change. I know there's a climate change forum coming up uh, um, uh, later this month um, or October. I can't remember. I'll, I'll get that right in the show notes. Um, but uh, tell, tell where, where are you with the climate change piece and, and where Palo Alto can, can lead, what we're doing well, maybe what we need to change. Where, where do you stand on the climate change question? Um. I think climate change is a terrible thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's I, bad. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I mean, I think that we are facing the end of the world if we don't, if we don't turn this around. I mean, why mince words? I think that Palo Alto put some really um, good goals in the comprehensive plan, but it has managed to break e- each and every one of its promises. And I'm extremely frustrated, hmm. very frustrated. Um, I am, um, I called into the city council meeting last week when they approved a, um, a new utilities plan that was going to divert funds that they were supposed to give to, um, to uh, climate low carbon options, uh, you know, to non um, petroleum based energy solutions, such as investments in water power and solar power they diverted that money that was supposed to go to there instead to assist um, customers with their um, utilities bills, which I don't have a problem with, except for the fact that during non-pandemic times, as much as 80 to 90% of our power is actually used by businesses, not by residents. And when I called in, I said, shouldn't we actually have a different approach when it comes to commercial use of power, especially for the highly profitable businesses than we have for um, residents? But um, like with most things, when you call in, they don't respond, yeah. you know, kind of like sure. shouting into the aqua chamber. But, you know, it's still worth, it's still yep. important to do. Um, and I encourage everyone else to do it. Um, so, but, but, Still, that money got diverted. Um, similarly, the city council recently canceled the plans for electric shuttles, which had been um, planned for so long. And they did that uh, for budgetary reasons. And you heard me talk about the te- business tax and that I don't think we yep. should have these types of budgetary concerns. Um, and um, so, again, this is a place where we're moving in the absolute wrong direction. And I want to say also when it comes to climate change, this is another issue of racial justice. Um, We know that communities of color are impacted a lot more by uh, global warming, by climate change, than our wealthier communities that are benefited by white privilege. And that is something we always need to be mindful of. So what do we know about how to solve Climate, how to reduce climate change. We need to reduce the use of, of petroleum-based energy. And that is so important. And, and helping businesses pay their energy bills is the opposite of going. That's going to actually encourage them to use more. You know, So right. that is the opposite of what we should be doing. Um, similarly, we know that reducing single-use cars is a really important way. So when the city, you know, 
shelved the idea of undergrounding the train, which I'm very much in favor of, and expanding our transit through, through electric shuttles and otherwise, that was in the wrong direction. So these are things we need to be doing and that I will work on. Great, great. Well, there's some questions in the Q&A that's starting to line up around that. But let me get to a couple more uh, before we jump to them. So uh, we have folks who are going to be watching this uh, and uh, who are from different faith communities. Uh, I think uh, it's an important uh, space that I've been occupying in San Francisco for a long time and trying to get engaged here in in this in. Palo Alto. I'm still the new kid, but, you know, trying to get to know folks. Uh, so what do you see as the role of faith community in Palo Alto now and in the future? You know, just what do you, where do you see us being helpful, uh, the, the, the breadth of faith communities that are represented in the city? First of all, I want to say that um, I don't think that there are enough pastors, ministers, reverends and rabbis and um, priests and other faith leaders. Possibly we need more to help us through this crisis that we're in. Um, We need the faith community. And I'm so grateful to you. Um, Little bit of my background. I am from a Jewish family where um, both of my parents have sat on the board of directors of my synagogue in in Milwaukee and have taken active roles in the Jewish community there. Um, My mother co-founded Jewish Day School. My kids went to the Jewish Day School in San Francisco before we moved down here. Now my daughter attends the Jewish high school. Um, My son goes to Pali. Um, It's, uh, and we are members of Beth Am and where my son had his bar mitzvah. My daughter had hers in San Francisco. So, the faith community is one with which I was raised and one with which I raised my children. And the interfaith community in particular um, has been an enormously powerful force for good. You know, in Milwaukee, it's, it, it literally saves lives in Milwaukee. And I'm sure it does here too. It's, this is a bigger place. You said that, you know, this is a small city. It's a bigger place than Milwaukee, you know, where it's raised. And the interfaith community is, is, always just one of the most essential you know sources of of comfort and aid and assistance and you know if you want to get something done you know people who belong to a church can ask their church like an f synagogue i mean faith communities are about community are about helping each other at least in my mind so what can the faith community do what can't the faith community <laughs> give, give comfort to people, assist mm. people, support people, house people. I'm so grateful for the parking lot assistance that, that so, so many places of worship are providing for the, for the families and individuals who live in their cars. That is so essential. I'm so grateful. I mean, I think my question is, how can I work more with the, with the faith community? How can we work together more? How can I you know, serve you and, and help you. And how can we work together when I'm on the city council? Good. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so one last uh, question that I'm asking everybody is what's your, and this is again, another big question that you get to kind of muse about. So what's your vision of Palo Alto in five or 10 years from now? Pick, pick, oh. a, pick a five or 10. And like, what do you, you get elected and you have input and influence and things happen the way you want it to go. What does Palo Alto look like in five or 10 years? What's your vision? It's this vision and not the problems that I'm here, why I'm here. It's this vision, the vision I got when I lived here in the 80s, you know, a vision of what Palo Alto can be. I want to be, you know, as we've discussed, Palo Alto is one of the wealthiest cities in the world. We have the biggest population of billionaires. Um, That means we have the greatest capacity 
to be a role model for all other cities. I think that, you know, as we are reaching this, this point of change, some call it an inflection point, I think inflection points are still to come, you know, I feel like, you know, as we're reaching this, 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 these moments of opportunity of change, um, Palo Alto with our great capacity can be a leader when it comes to um, green, you know, having the city be green, uh, car free, as much car free as we can. Let's get electric shuttles in. Let's make the bike paths better. Let's keep, keep pedestrians safe on, you know, the sidewalks, which is a big problem now, especially for seniors. Um, so a walkable, bikeable, shuttleable city that we don't have to be in fear of being hit by trucks, a city with housing, um, you know, and not these office parks. And by the, I, I would like to see so many of these office parks, most of them, you know, because there's so many that are actually stalled in, in construction. If you go mm. just south of, of Stanford and west of El Camino, you see these huge office parks that are abandoned or stalled in construction. That should be housing. Of course, we'll also need HP to clean up the HP Superfund site, which is also there to return this land to a livable situation. But we, they need to be held told to test to do that. It's going to cost them a lot of money. But before, if they go, are going to go out in the business in the future, they got to clean it up now. So housing, transit, um, many more investments in education. Um, I've been talking a lot on, in the Pali parent group on uh, Facebook about how we need more U University of California campuses. California has the fifth largest economy in the world. Why do only the top 5% of graduating seniors get to go to our UC schools? How does that make sense? There should be a UC campus here in Palo Alto along with the Stanford campus. Because in my vision, college is free. And, you know, I don't know when this is going to happen, but this needs to happen <laughs> where jobs pay a living wage where I mean, that is so important too. we live in a culture where people have to have multiple jobs to barely make ends meet. And that's not okay. Jobs need to pay a living wage. Childcare needs to be available and everyone needs to have health insurance. Palo Alto can afford to do all these things. We can, we have billionaires. Mm -hmm. We have billion-dollar companies that are extraordinarily profitable. We can do all of these. Are we going to do them all at once? No. We're going to start with one, and then we're going to do another, and then we're going to do another. And over time, we can build this. Great. Um, great. Well, let's do move to, move to uh, some, uh, some questions. Um, uh, we first we have uh, Margaret. Margaret Fiddler is asking, how do you approach thinking about the various options for changing our rail crossings, crossings after electrification? What do you understand uh, about several hybrid options being proposed? And I'm reading this. You can see these as well on your thing. I'm reading it uh, yeah, but for I folks who are watching yeah. later. Yeah, so I've been I've been following that very closely. I've been um, I spoke with the Southgate community just a few weeks ago. I know they're very invested in it. As are um, you know, South Palo Alto, because there's more crossings there, Barron Park and, um, you know, the, the neighborhood South Palo Alto. Here's what I think. I think trains need to be undergrounded. I think trains need to be undergrounded. I think that these, these hybrid approaches um, are harmful to the community. Um, the approach of um, closing off streets harms the community because it closes off neighbor, neighborhood from neighborhood. Um, the approach of lifting up the train harms the community because of the noise and the pollution. Um, you know, creating, um, 
you know, underground uh, access for for bikes and pedestrians is, is a nice thought, um, but we have to be honest about where we're moving with transit and where we are moving is a, it has to be a place where transit is, is invested in. And undergrounding the trains is an important part of that. Let me tell you one other benefit of undergrounding the trains. Many people say, but how do we afford it? And you already heard me talk several times about facts, <laughs> right? But there's, yeah. there's something else that would be created if these trains are undergrounded. And this, I think, would create more revenue and pay for the project by itself. And what would be created is 50 acres of, of usable land that can be used for housing that is, as far as I'm aware, belongs to the city with, a, with an easement from Caltrain. Again, you know, to be confirmed, and that easement right. then would go underground. And imagine if we take all that space right now that is dedicated to the train and the train stations and the train tracks, imagine if we just cover that with green and imagine if our neighborhoods could be connected and if we could put housing on all of that. Imagine how much our community would be benefited and imagine how valuable that land would be. I, be, I believe the best use of that would be for public housing at all income levels, but there'll be lots of choices. All right. This is great. We got a few more questions. We got to go quick on these ones because we're almost uh, at our hour. Uh, Leif Erickson asked, we have two more for you. Leif Erickson asked, the recent city budget hearings almost cut every teen program in the city. They restored some funding, but not all. At a time when our teen mental health issues are under even greater stress, how should city budget priorities be balanced to support the needs of our young people? Go ahead and brief. You got it. You got a brief one on this one. Go for it. I have a 17 year old and a, and a 15 year old and I'm furious. Um, it was completely unacceptable. The city council still plans to invest $150 million in this police station. They state, dedicated $20 million to the private airport. They have a lot of other infrastructure projects that are not um, necessarily for the public good like these teen programs are. Um, we need to invest heavily in mental health for everyone and that teens are top in priority. Thank you for bringing that up. Great, great, awesome. Uh, last question from a participant, Joy Slizer is asking, and you can, again, briefly, how can we support you? Thank you. Oh, I love you so much. Um, one of the reasons I didn't run for office till I'm 52 is because I hate asking for money. I hate it. I hate, <laughs> it, hate, it, hate it. And most of my constituents are really hurting for money. You know, so I, because this are the people that I support. And are the, I think all of us have been hurt in some way or other by the pandemic. And many of us have been hurt financially. Um, my website, if, but if you have money to support me, Please give. The money will be used very, very wisely because we are lean and we are grassroots. <laughs> uh, the URL is winwithrebecca.com. Um, I will try to put it in the um, – where should I put it? Q&A? And we'll, or, we'll share it, we'll share we'll share it, it with, in all the other places yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So, and we, we also could use help with, um, with outreach, with volunteering. Um, there are a lot of – you know, really our biggest priority is to be able to speak with – um, as many people as possible, which is hard during the pandemic. So virtually sure. is yeah. good. Well, that's why I'm glad that nine or 10 of you are, are doing this. Stuff. All right. We got to quickly, we got your uh, four other questions. This is very quick. So I'll any questions for me? Any questions for me? 
I will, um, I'll pass on that to answer the other question. Okay. Because we <laughs> talked yesterday, right. too. I will say I'm, yes. I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> uh, so we'll think. And I, uh, so what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to in three minutes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, as I mentioned, I just finished um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by, um, by Abram X. Gandhi, which I thought was brilliant and important. And I had read it first briefly, and then I really deep dove into it. And I... Everybody needs to read this book. It needs to be taught in all the schools. Before that, I read um, White Fragility, um, which is also an, an absolutely incredible book. I listened to both actually in Audible um, while also following on the Kindle because I'm that nerdy. Um, my big, <laughs> most of the time though, I am big on, um, on science fiction. Um, and uh, before I read these two, I, I basically, and I'm a huge reader. Like I'm a, I, I don't need to answer the other two questions because for me- <laughs> It's reading. Reading is reading okay. is basically my life. So I'm a huge science fiction fan, and I can now say I've read every single book and short story ever written by Octavia Butler. She has sure. she yep. she predicted in Parable. Oh, I know. And she predicted everything that we're seeing. It's happening frightening. From 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 Trump to the fires to make America great again. I hope the other stuff that she predicted um, <laughs> doesn't come. True, but it's on us to make sure it doesn't come true. So read um, Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower, and, and all of her other books if you have a chance. So worthwhile. Awesome. All right. So we'll just, uh, we're going to end there. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Please be sure to register for all the webinars with the candidates by visiting uh, www.fpresspa.org. You can see the recordings from past ones. This recording will be up in the next day or so. Uh, you can watch it again on YouTube and Instagram TV and on my podcast, BRC and Friends. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca Eisenb4. You can just type in her name and you'll find it. It comes up. And on Instagram at Eisenberg 2020 It's on Facebook, website. We'll have all those connections for you. Oh, you and always... It. Yeah, or you can just call. And you can always connect with me on the social media platforms. I'm always at B. Reyes Chow. Please be sure to follow and connect to First Presbyterian Church on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at FPC Palo Alto. And subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto. Um, Derek Kikuchi is on a break today. So I uh, got to do this on my own. I think it went okay. Uh, but we thank Derek for all the work that he's done. And thank you, Rebecca, for sitting down with me today. Thank you so much, Bruce. I'm so honored yeah. to be here. And all right. thank you for all the work you do for our community. Oh, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and again, thanks for everybody for joining us. We'll see you next week when I'll sit down with two more candidates, Greg Tanaka and Ajit Varma. All right. You all have a great rest of the week. Bye-bye. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog, Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. When you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.